think God has an encouraging word for us today from Romans 1, 11 and 12. And that encouragement is about our encouragement toward other people. So Paul's encouraging us, he's encouraging the Romans, and therefore encouraging us about how we encourage others. So the, the big idea here today is encouragement. And though there are a variety of ways in which encouragement happens, um, I'm not going to dive into that, but I just want you to keep in mind that when we use the word encouragement, we tend to think of this as something that is strictly viewed as positive, uh, like someone's like, oh, I'm having a rough day, and you're like, it's okay, buddy, you can do it, you know, that kind of thing, or like coming alongside somebody and being like, um, oh, are you struggling? Let me pray for you. Like, that's all very positive, but the need for encouragement comes from somewhere what, that we would call negative. Like, the only reason you need to encourage someone is because they're lacking encouragement. Anyone who's therefore discouraged, I don't think they'd identify that as positive. It's a negative experience. But with sound theology, good doctrine, and knowledge of the Bible, what we can recognize is that even in discouragement, that that can be God at work. Or in fact, it is God in work. Always at work in everything and anything you go through. So even in your discouragements, God is at work. So we tend to think of encouragement as this positive experience, but the requirement for encouragement demands that there's a discouragement somehow. And so think about the number of people in this room or the number of people in your life, maybe coworkers, family, friends, your church friends, church family, maybe friends at school. Maybe, what, a couple hundred people that you know well, well enough to call a friend or at least a, you know, a well-known acquaintance. So we'll just say round number, 200 people. Do you think out of 200 people, there aren't 10, 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 people there who are discouraged? And those might be the ones that tell you that they're discouraged or show you their discouragement. How many of them are hiding their discouragement? So how do we know to encourage people? Because if I walk out of here today and I see someone sitting on the floor, tucked in the corner of the hallway with their head down and their hands over and they're crying, I'm going to look at that person and go, they could probably use some encouragement, right? That's a pretty obvious one. Okay, I coach basketball. I watch these boys. They play the game. They miss a shot. They get frustrated. They get a bad call. And they're oh, welcome like this. And I'm like, encouragement time. You know, let's lift these boys up. Let's get their mind in the game. You know, it's, sometimes it's really obvious when people need encouragement. But I think most people, and I put myself in this group because I know I do it too, we hide our discouragements. You know Why? Because you're proud. It's pride. That's sin. That's sin to hide your discouragements. Maybe there are some non-sinful reasons to hide a discouragement. I could understand that. But ultimately, what tends to be the case is we don't want people to see that we're not self-operable. That we are... Like, we don't want to show any weakness. Like, I'm a good, strong Christian. I got this. How you doing today? I'm good. Like, how many times have you told people, I'm good, and you're not good? We hide those things. 
Because our pride says, don't show them your weakness. Don't show them your hurt. Don't show them that you're in pain. Don't show them that you need them. Because not only does that show that you're weak, but it also shows, it, it also makes those people help me. And I don't want your help. That's what discouragement does to us. It starts playing with our mind. Satan's whispering in our ears. Our sinful nature wants to self-regulate and figure things out on our own. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, maybe 2 Corinthians. Mm, now i got to find it. And I hate getting references wrong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that in our weakness we are strong. Like Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more in my weaknesses. Paul's like, if you went up to Paul and said, Paul, you're discouraged, you'd be like, yeah, I'm discouraged. I'm a terrible mess. I'm having a rough time. I just got out of a shipwreck. Then I got whipped 40 times, 39 times, and now I'm in jail. I'm very discouraged. But Paul always had men around him who were encouraging. Barnabas was a great encourager to Paul. That's why he hung around him all the time. Paul needed encouragement just as much as we do. We can't hide our discouragement. And I'll, I'll explain why as we go through this text. If we hide our discouragement, and we're not honest with each other, then who can we be honest with? We could say, my spouse. My spouse is the one person that I can be most transparent with. And that's good. That's true. Absolutely. And there are certainly things that maybe are, are just for you and your spouse as far as discouragements go, and that's okay. Or maybe just between you and a really good friend. That's fine. But keep in mind, we are a family. I don't think we grasp the concept of family enough in the church. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. My relationship with you in Jesus is a stronger bond by the blood of Christ than my relationship with my biological brother. Amen. That is so strong. Now, thankfully, I'm grateful to God. My brother and my sister are saved. They're siblings I mean, their, their siblings, their spouses are saved and their kids are saved. And so on my side of the family, everybody's saved. My brother's a children's pastor in Kenosha. My sister and her husband go to church and, you know, they're involved. And so, like, I have a brotherhood and a sisterhood with them that is, that is in Christ. And that relationship with them is deeper than our biological bond. My relationship with you is deeper than any biological bond. And I say deeper because it's infinitely deep. Christ is infinitely great. God is an infinite God. Our relationship with each other is based on the infinite Christ and his infinite glory that he gives to an infinite God that will span for eternity. So inf infinite and eternity mean no end. So the infinite nature of God is expressed in the reality that, it, that is, his nature never ends, that he never ends, and he shares his infinite nature and his eternal nature with us by making us like him and putting us in Christ. So we are considered in God's eyes just like God sees his son Jesus. Like, I know you know that up here, but like, just grasp that reality that when God looks at you, I mean, just think about how God looks at Jesus, Right? Well, think about how Mary looked at Jesus, and then she'd look at James and be like, James, oh. but Jesus, he doesn't do anything wrong, 
right? She probably looked at Jesus with the most like adorning eyes. She probably just loved him. He was so precious to her. Um, not that James or his other brothers wouldn't have been to a mother, but Jesus is perfect son of God. I'm sure Mary just looked at him like, oh, he's just perfect. He's so amazing. What do you think God the Father, whose love is perfect and has been in a, in a relationship with the son since eternity past? There was no beginning to the relationship between the father and the son. No beginning. So if we, we can't even grasp the infinite reality of that nature and that relationship. How much do you, how much love could we even process in our feeble human brains to try to understand the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love for his son Jesus? We just, it's unbelievable. And when God looks at you, he looks at you the same way he looks at Jesus. That is mind bending. I know, like, we know that up here, but like, Take it from your head and put it in your heart. Like, I don't know how else to say it. Like, hold on to that feeling. Like, try to feel it on an emotional level. Try to understand it on an intellectual level. Try to grasp it in, 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 in a concept of eternity and the infinite nature of God whose love is so grand and so spectacular and so magnificent and so eternal and so unbelievable and unfathomable and un inexpressible and unsearchable and that, that he has to have a relationship with us that lasts forever without end in order to fully express to us his love for us. Amen. So, God's love is so infinitely and eternally great that he has to make us eternal in order to show us the infinite and eternal nature of his love. So he's like, I'm going to save you through my son Jesus, who will be a sacrifice, will die on a cross for your sins because I love you that much. And then I'm going to, in Christ, give you eternal life so that you can spend eternity, and as he, Psalm 1611 says, the never-ending pleasures and joy of my presence. Never-ending, everlasting. God is going to spend eternity, moment by moment, day by day, going, look at my love. And we're going to be like, oh, that's new. I didn't see that one yesterday. Here's more of my love. Oh, it's so good. And then more, and then more, and then more without end for eternity, expressing to us his glory, his greatness, his grace, his mercy, his love, his kindness, his, his goodness, just the, the totality of his character revealed moment by moment, forever, forever, forever. We will never, ever for a moment be dissatisfied in the presence of God or in the presence of Jesus Christ because God wants to blow your mind with his love forever. And he does do that, and he will continue to do that, and he will do it for eternity because his love is beyond your comprehension. That's how much he loves you. So let me ask, if that's true, what discouragement that is not eternal, but is solely temporal, what discouragement that is not eternal is getting between you and God's love. Think about that. That we think, of, we try to grasp the significance of this love that I just described, and we're like, well, yeah, that's great and all, but somebody just yelled at me today, and I feel really bad about it. <laughs> like, there are so many things 
that when you look at like Paul's life and the way that he expresses his hardships, and he's like, yeah, that's hard. It's destroying me. Second Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, Paul says, you know, we, are, we were going through such a hard time, him and his friends, him and the apostles, were having such a hard time that we despise of life itself. We, they wanted to die. They're like, I'd rather be dead. And he's like, but that was God's way of showing me how much I need him. And so, like, there, even Paul, who goes through way more sufferings than really anyone in this room has ever gone through, I assume, goes through way more sufferings, and in every suffering he goes, but I'm content in Christ. This is killing me, but I'm content in Christ. Beaten, content in Christ. Lashed 39 times, content in Christ. Shipwrecked, shipwrecked, and shipwrecked, imprisoned, imprisoned, imprisoned. He was even worshipped, which sounds great to a lot of people. And Paul says, I don't want to be worshipped. That's a hardship he has to go through. All of those difficulties... And every, every moment he goes, but I have Christ. But I have Christ. In the heat of your greatest discouragements, Christ shows up and says, I am the encouragement. There is no discouragement that trumps Christ. That's, his, that's, the, that's part of the gospel message. That's the beauty of our relationship with God in Jesus Christ. There is no hardship that is greater or harder than the joy and the love and the goodness of God that we find in Jesus Christ, which is promised to us to have today, that we can live today, and we are guaranteed for eternity. So, if we have that encouragement, how ought we to act toward one another? How should we encourage each other? Sometimes I'll hear, like, my kids, maybe you've heard your kids, like, yell at each other, or they get mad at each other, they tear each other down, they make fun of each other, they hurt each other's feelings, and one of them comes, oh, you called me dumb, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, you hit me with a ball in the face. You know, like, kids get, fight and argue and, you know, mistreat each other. It's just, you know, it's part of growing up, and that's why they have parents to tell them that that's not okay. And what do we do is... Parents, we don't go like, yeah, keep making fun of your brother and treat him like garbage. None of us tell our kids that, right? Instead, what do we say? We tell them that their behavior toward their sibling is inappropriate, that it's hurtful. And if we take it further than that, as we should, we tell them that, you know, what, what Jesus said, that you know, Jesus tells us to treat others as we'd like to be treated. And what I usually ask my kids is, whoa, is what you just said, did, did what you just said, was that encouraging or discouraging to your brother? And they're usually like, discouraging. <laughs> I'm like, exactly, lift your brother up. Like, I have that conversation with my kids constantly, you know? They just, and so it's important that we tell our kids to uplift and encourage and strengthen each other at home and in their other relationships, never tearing them down, always lifting them up as we consider others more important than ourselves. Philippians chapter 2. So encouragement, what it does there, that's just a practical expression of the reality of how we should be treating each other because encouragement does something really awesome. Encouragement reveals the power of the gospel. When other people are off or wrong or discouraged or hurt or in some sort of difficulty, just as God comes to rescue us in Christ, so also we need to encourage each other with the good news of the gospel by 
and this is what Paul's getting to in Romans 1, the way in which we encourage them is with our spiritual gifts. And we, we, we use those spiritual gifts to encourage each other and to strengthen each other and to uplift each other just as God has done for us in Christ. And that's Paul's encouragement to us in Romans 1, 11 through 12. So verses 11 through 12, Paul writes, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul wanted to visit the Roman believers, and though he was unable to do that at the time, he does eventually get to Rome, but he sends them this letter instead. And the entirety of the letter is theologically super heavy. I've taught through the book of Romans, but I've never preached from this pulpit the book of Romans, and every time I think I want to, I'm like, it's too deep, too heavy, not ready, not yet. I'd love to teach it. I don't know if I'm ready to teach it or if everybody's ready to receive it because it is heavy, but so good, obviously. And, and so what Paul does before he starts this 16 chapters of just really rich doctrine and not just rich doctrine, but practical application of rich doctrine, uh, before he does that, he starts with something very simple, encouragement. It just encourages the believers. He does that often in his letters. And so he begins this letter with this encouragement, which ultimately reveals, this, these verses ultimately reveal Paul's desire, that his desire to see the Roman believers is based on his desire to share in each other's spiritual gifts. So that's a motivation for him. And we find conversations or teaching on spiritual gifts in 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11. Peter talks about spiritual gifts. And each gift, Peter says, is meant to serve one another. That's the purpose of your gift, to serve one another. Your gift is not meant to be held onto, kept, tucked away, or put away. It's meant to be expressed, poured out, and used on others and for others. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and how we are a light on a hill, a city, or a city on a hill that can't you know, not be seen or we shouldn't be a light that we put under a bushel to be seen. And one of the ways we're seen, one of the ways we show Christ, one of the ways we express the kingdom of God, one of the ways we reveal the goodness and glory and grace of the gospel is by using our spiritual gifts. That helps the light of Christ shine because the gifts are empowered by the Spirit. But in 1 Peter, just before Peter explains how we are to use our gifts to serve one another, first he lays like this baseline or a foundation for what should motivate us to use our gifts on each other. So this is really important because we're talking about spiritual gifts, using spiritual gifts to encourage each other. So encouragement's the aim, spiritual gifts is the means, but before we get a grasp on the means by which we encourage each other, we need to understand the foundation of the means. So the goal is to encourage each other. How? Spiritual gifts. Well, why would I want to use spiritual gifts to encourage people? And there's a reason why we should desire to use our gifts to encourage other people. And that reason is love. When you look at 1 Peter 4, right when he starts this section about spiritual gifts, the first thing he says before he talks about gifts themselves and he gives examples like hospitality, service, whatever your gift is, use it to serve one another. Before he says that, the verse before he says that, 1 Peter 4, 8, he says this, Above all, 
Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And then he goes right into the gifts. It is love for each other that motivates us to use our spiritual gifts to encourage and strengthen each other. Love is the baseline. Without love, there will be no righteous motivation to even access your gift at all or to use it at all because the gifts are meant to use on each other. They're not for ourselves. So to use them, to use your gifts, we need, to, we need someone to use them on. Because your gift isn't for you, it's for others. So to use my gift, I need someone to use it on. And in order to use a spiritual gift on someone, I must be motivated to serve that person. To give them my gift. And to be motivated to serve that person, you must have some degree of love for that person. If you don't, then you are misusing your gift and your motivations are twisted and you may perform a service to them, physically perform a, some sort of way of serving them, but it is not love and it is therefore sin even though it looks like a righteous thing to do. So love has to motivate your spiritual gifts which encourage people. And if all of that starts without love, if you're using what you call a spiritual gift, in an attempt to encourage somebody, if you're doing all of that and love is not a motivator, it is literally worthless. Meaning the heart behind your service to others matters more than the actual service. And in order for the actual service to be beneficial to that person, there must be love. You can do many things in the name of Christ and do them for the sake of others with many motivations that are loveless, And all that action would be summarized as sin because there's no love. So notice what motivates Paul the most in verse 11. He says, for I long to see you. He is telling them that he loves them. And from love comes a desire to commune, to connect, to be with people. I love my wife, therefore I want to spend time with her. I love my kids, therefore I want to spend time with them. Paul loves the Romans, therefore he longs to see them or wants to spend time with them. But he doesn't want to waste that time, so he hopes to encourage them with his spiritual gifts when he does meet with them, and he hopes that they would also encourage him with their spiritual gifts. Because that's what he says at the end of verse 12. He says that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's gifts. Keep in mind, this is huge. Paul isn't just saying... I want to give you my spiritual gift, but I also uh, selfishly want you to bless me with yours. That's not what he's saying. There's not a selfish motivation for Paul to say, let's mutually encourage each other. What Paul is really saying is, if love is motivating you, you don't have a choice. You're going to love me with your spiritual gift. If you are filled with love for God in Christ by the power of the Spirit, then you are therefore filled with the Spirit. And if you are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit will pour out of you. He will manifest himself out of you. And when he does, he will express his gifts from you to me. So Paul isn't being selfish and saying, I want some of your gift too. But even if he did, he'd be okay. That's not selfish. What Paul is really saying is, I want you to be motivated by love, just like I'm motivated by love for you. I love you so much. I want to bring my gifts. I want to encourage you and strengthen you. I want you to love me because I'm your brother in Christ. I want for your sake and for your soul to love me well. And if you do, you will pour out the Spirit on me too. And we will share in each other's gifts and we'll be mutually encouraged by one another. 
The point is that you cannot properly or righteously use your spiritual gifts if you are not motivated by love. You can do a lot of things in the name of Jesus. You can do a lot of things in the name of a spiritual gift. You can do a lot of things in the name of whatever you want to call it that look good and look Christian and look like obedience in the church and there's nothing in the heart going on that's real, that's not love, and Paul calls it worthless. I mean, I've shared this example many times. Israel. At one point, God says to Israel, you obeyed all my commands. Right? So they, they did what was commanded. They did the right thing. They performed the right actions. And he says, but you did it without joy. Therefore, so their actions are right, but their heart's not right. God calls them out on it. Do you know what the consequence is? They get overtaken by another nation. That's an extreme consequence. You're going to be consumed by the Babylonians because you did everything I asked you to do, but you did it with the wrong heart. I call my kids out on that all the time. They'll be like, I mean, my kids have a great attitude, really, honestly, most of the time. (laughs) I always use them as like a bad example. That's not fair to them. But sometimes when they're like grumpy, you're like, hey, why don't you go, you know, do this or that? And And I'll just say, listen, don't give me that attitude, right? And I want you to do it with joy. And they're like, fine. <laughs> like, pretend like they have joy. And I'm like, that's not real. That's not real. I want it right here. I want real satisfaction. And I'll tell my kids sometimes, like, your job, your responsibility as my child is to please me. And I know that sounds totally selfish, but it's not about me. It's not about Mark. It's not about their dad. It's not what it's about. It's about their heart. And I tell them, I want you to practice pleasing me because that's my responsibility is to please my father. You get to practice pleasing God by pleasing your father. And you have a short amount of time living in my home and under my care as your dad and under my control or under my uh, authority that that we get this time where you get to practice expressing love for your father to me. And that's not just for me, that's you practicing what you need so you can be a more fruitful and faithful Christian as you grow older. So I care about their heart so that they don't go into church 25 years old and someone's like, can you help in the nursery? And they're like, oh, fine. And they do it without love. So love has to be the motivator. 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the chapter on love, right? It's used in weddings all the time to show, to emphasize the importance of love. But 1 Corinthians 13 is sandwiched in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, right? Well, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 are only and all about spiritual gifts. So the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is not just about love in general. It is specifically written to emphasize the importance of love in spiritual gifts. And this is how Paul starts 1 Corinthians 13 as he's talking about spiritual gifts. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That means you're just noise. Meaningless noise. Just talk, just action, just doing things that look good but have no value and no meaning and no worth because love is not motivating them. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so get all these activities that we would call spiritual gifts, he says, so, 
the kind of faith that removes mountains. He says, but if I do all that, but have not love, I am what? Nothing. Nothing. Not something, not a little bit, nothing. It's pointless. I do not want you to use your spiritual gifts. That is not the point. I do not want you to encourage one another. That is not the point. I want you to love each other. If you do, you won't, have, you won't need me to tell you to use your gifts, and you won't need me to tell you to encourage each other. It will be the product of the Holy Spirit if you love each other. And you can't love each other if you don't love God. Now, I would imagine everyone in this room would say, yeah, I love God. I mean, that's why I'm here, right? What I mean is, your love for God has to grow so that your love for each other grows. Do you perfectly love everybody in this room? No. None of us do. Why? Because you have a sinful nature that impedes perfect love. That's why we get sanctified and grow and mature because God is ripping off the flesh and revealing more of Christ in us and helping us love each other better. But we don't love each other perfectly. And the reason we don't love each other perfectly is because we don't love God perfectly. And we don't love God perfectly because we don't know God perfectly. So the means by which we can love each other better is to know God better. If we know God better, we will love God more. And our, love, our, our, increase, of love, our increase in love for God will increase our love toward each other. And our love toward God will show up in obedience. And our obedience to God will show up in serving and encouraging and giving each other spiritual gifts. So it all begins, and so here's the ultimate question. If, if the ultimate aim is really to love God more so that all those other things happen, well, how do I love God more? Does anyone know? I'll let you answer. How do we love God more? How can you increase your love for God? Well, I already kind of answered it, to know God more. How can we know God more? Be in the Word. Like I've said this, I don't know, 52 times a year. Right? Every week. I feel like I say it every week. And I literally, I'm not even kidding you guys, I'll be sitting there typing my sermon. I'll be like, uh-oh, I can feel this is leading to read your Bible and pray every day. <laughs> I'm like, I, I can't say that again. I'm like, it's the only thing I should be saying. I, I can't, I don't know what else to say. It's the answer to life. Like, it is all that you need. The word of God and prayer. And, and if we understand that, then all the other needs in life are like perfectly oriented and categorized and prioritized by the word. You're thinking, well, I don't just need the word. I need this and that. I need food and water and life. And Jesus is like, I don't need food and water. I have the word of God. That's how important this is. So ultimately, what this boils down to is we all need to be in the word. I'm going to say more. That might not mean more time. That might mean differently. Maybe you do spend quite a bit of time in the Word, but how do you spend your time in the Word? Are you reading? Are you studying? Are you looking at other resources? Are you cross-referencing? Are you taking notes? Are you writing things down? Are you highlighting? Are you, I don't know, I mean, are you praying through the Word as you study it? Are you just reading it to read it? Are you listening to it in, the, in your headphones or in the car? Are you reading it with your eyes? Some things might need to change, or maybe not change, but improve or do other things, like maybe... Uh, you listen to 
the word every day and you're not getting time in the word with your eyes. Maybe you need to take some time to sit down and read the Bible so you can see it and spend a little time contemplating it. You won't get through as much, but it could be really fruitful in another way. So there are, so when I say more time, when I say be in the word more, I don't just mean like more time, give up more time. That might be what you need, but maybe it's just you need another way or another avenue or another means by which you're in the word so that you can know God more. And in knowing God more, you will love him more because he will show you Christ and Christ loves you and Christ died for you and he will show you his goodness and God will look so awesome and so beautiful and your love for God and your love for Christ will increase as you commune with God in the word. Communing with God and being in his word is how he fills us with his spirit and as he fills us with his spirit, he's filling us with his love and as he fills us with his love, that love overflows and we can't help but pour it on other people in spiritual gifts to encourage and strengthen one another. That, that's not... I don't think that's deep. That's not a deep truth. I, I don't think that's a complicated truth. I think that's a very simple equation. What's hard about it is doing it, right? It always seems to be the case. The things we get right here that we understand in our mind aren't always easy to do. So, if it's hard to do, what do we do? How do we make it not hard to do? Well, I could give you lots of answers. Number one would be like, not number one necessarily, but just one thing I think of is be accountability. Having someone hold you accountable to how you spend your time in the word or in prayer and if you're doing it. But ultimately, if you don't have a desire for the word and you don't have a desire to pray and you're like, I, I know I should, and I, like, I want to, but I just don't because I, I actually don't want to and I'm just like waiting for God to give me this desire. Nowhere in scripture are we taught, wait for desire before you obey me. Nowhere. In scripture is that taught. What we learn from scripture is when God commands us, at least in the new covenant, when God commands us, if you're not, if your desire isn't right, you still have to obey the command. And obedience will produce desire. Right? That's why when my kids don't, when my, when my kids do the right thing, tell them I do it. Like, take the trash out. Oh, I don't want to take the trash out. I'm like, well, do it with joy. And is their heart really just suddenly transformed into joy? No. I know. I know what it's like to be a human. That doesn't happen in an instant. They're not like, oh, dad just told me to be joy. Now all of a sudden I'm just filled with happiness. That doesn't work. Especially teenagers. So they still have to do the task I commanded them to do. And as they do the task, over and over, and I command them over and over, what happens is I get opportunities every time to teach them joy, joy, do it with joy, and eventually they start expecting a desire to accompany the command and the action, and their desire grows. If you find it difficult to be in the Word and be in prayer, here's, here's what I think you need to do. You need to be in the Word and be in prayer. If you're having a hard time getting in the Word, Here's your solution. Get in the Word! <laughs> if you're having a hard time being in prayer, I don't care, just pray. Just pray. And I'll share a quick thing that I went through. I know I've shared this before. But when I was early 20s, I remember thinking like, God, I genuinely don't have a desire to pray for you, to pray to you. And so I just like told them, I'm like, if you want me to pray, you're going to have to make me want to pray. You're just going to have to make me want it. You're going to have to like drop this desire in my heart, which we don't find a lot of in Scripture. Just 
infuse this desire in my heart. But the only reason I can is because he does drop that desire in me in Christ when he saves me. So he makes me someone new. So even though I'm going, I don't desire it, there is Christ in me who's going, yeah, but I do. I want to commune with the Father through you, Mark. That's why I put my spirit in you. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't want it. That's my flesh talking. I don't want it. Spirit's like, I do. So I'm honest with God. I'm like, God, my flesh is in the way. I don't want to commune with you. I don't want to pray. You're going to have to make me want to pray. Next day, God, I don't want to pray, so you're going to have to make me want to pray. Next day, God, I don't want to pray, you're going to have to make me want to pray. Next day, God, I don't want to pray, you're going to have to make me want to pray. And by the way, God, just so you know, you know what happened to me today? This happened to me today, and I don't really like that either. So if you could take care of that too, that'd be great. Next day, and you know what else, God? And all of a sudden, I'm praying, <laughs> right? Like, I, I don't, throughout all that, I didn't, still didn't feel that desire, but I was doing it. And God blessed, God blessed obedience by creating desire. So if you're not in the Word and you're not in prayer, the only solution is just do it. <laughs> That's it. You just do it. I'm not saying that I want you to do it or that God wants you to do it without the right heart. That is the opposite because the whole point of this text is that the heart matters most. But in order for the heart to change, we need the word of God. So this is the one activity, the one command, the one thing, or two things, I guess, communion with God, I'd say. The word and prayer is communion with God. Communion with God is the one thing that has to happen regardless of your heart. Because that's the only place your heart gets fixed. Now, I say all this for a reason. I want you to use your spiritual gifts for each other. Because God wants you to spend your spiritual gifts on each other. So I want you to use them. But if I simply tell you to use your spiritual gifts and then you do it and you do it without love, then it's worthless. The church isn't encouraged. We're not strengthened and we don't grow together. We, we, we need your heart properly motivated. Now you might be thinking, okay, I get it. I gotta love God. I gotta be in the word and be in prayer. So I can know God better and love him more. And by loving him more and being filled with the spirit, which happens when I commune with God in his word and prayer, I get filled with his spirit. His spirit then pours out of me in spiritual gifts. And I have not only the proper activity, but I have the proper motivation, which is I love people because I love God so much. And God loves people. If I love God so much, I love people. So I'm going to pour out the spirit and God's love onto others because he's pouring his love into me. That's simple. So I just got to commune with God. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so now I just need to know what are my spiritual gifts? Right? Like, what is my gift? Well, some of you were not here when I preached through 1 Corinthians a few years ago and taught on spiritual gifts. So I'm going to give you kind of a, a rundown quick. Spiritual gifts are not instruments or objects that we have in our pocket and pull out when we need them. Like, the church often talks about, what's your spiritual gift? Figure out your spiritual gift. And we've done spiritual gift tests here. And really the purpose of a spiritual gift test, first of all, it does not determine what your gift is. It's kind of something meant to point you in the right direction. And what a spiritual gifts test does is it actually reveals uh, your personality more than your gifting. It reveals the kinds of things you're comfortable doing. When I take a, per when I take a, a spiritual gifts test and it says, do you like serving people? I'm like, zero. No, not at all. Like, and I mean serving, it's like, it doesn't ask the question, you like serve. I love serving people in my way. What I mean is like, do you, 
things like, do you, when someone says they need, to, they need help moving, are you the kind of person who's like, yeah, I'd love to do that. I'm like, no, I'm the person who hides so they don't ask me because I don't like moving. I don't, it's not my spiritual, it's not my personality. I have other things in my personality that God has equipped me for. And one of them isn't doing all the physical labor and service. Like when we used to have to tear down the chairs and set them back up every week, uh, I never helped. Maybe a few times I helped. It's just not my thing. That's more about my personality than the spirit. Because there are plenty of times where I joyfully, with a heart filled with love for others, tore down the chairs and set up the chairs. And you know what that tells me? That's not me. Because I don't like doing that. I don't like doing that. I like preaching. <laughs> so, yeah. You, <laughs> well, one, and one other person likes my preaching. So, <laughs> there's two of us. <laughs> so, what I'm saying is that if I did fill out a spiritual gifts test, and it, it determines your service, your spiritual, your spiritual gift is not the gift of service. Oh, then I should never serve. Well, then how is it that I have served joyfully in love for others and out of love for God? How? How could I possibly do that if it's not my spiritual gift? Somehow, the Spirit had to supernaturally empower my act of service because it's not who I really am. I could stand here and preach to you without the Holy Spirit, and I think I would trick you and you wouldn't know I'm not Spirit-filled. I believe I could do that. I think that's my personality. Without the Holy Spirit, I could do that. So the spiritual gifts test, I don't want to do that. The spiritual gifts test is just what it reveals is what you're more naturally uh, attuned to doing or good at or enjoy or like. And because that's the way you're wired, that might be something that the Spirit empowers regularly in you. Right? So I would say that my spiritual gift, one of my spiritual gifts is teaching and preaching. Um, and am I walking around every day, all day, Tuesday afternoons, preaching to people? No. Because I don't need it then. I need it now. So I trust the Spirit to use me now, to pour out his gifting now, to manifest himself now. Well, it's time to preach. Do I have the spiritual gift of encouragement? No. But do people need to be encouraged? Yes. My point is, we tend to think of spiritual gifts as like, I got saved, God gave me his Spirit, and the Spirit came into me and said, here, Mark, you get this gift, and maybe one other, or maybe two other, and you know, to one person he gives one, to another person he gives three, or whatever. We tend to think of it that way. That's not the reality. We are not given spiritual gifts. What are we given? The Spirit. We're given the Spirit. And the problem in Corinth was that they worshiped the gifts, not the giver. That's the, that's the whole reason I watch churches in America copy 1 Corinthians. They copied the way that the church behaved in Corinth. And Paul's entire first letter of 1 Corinthians was a, con a condemnation for the way they behave and how they use the gifts. They abused the gifts and misused the gifts. Because they loved the gift more than the giver. They wanted to be like, I'm a prophet. I Watch me prophesy. Oh, I have the gift of tongues. Blah, 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 blah. And they would speak in tongues and yell out things and prophesy because they all wanted to be the big, bad prophet and the, the person who has the prophecy from God and I'm going to speak it in tongues. And Paul's like, you're doing all this wrong. There's no interpreter. you got the wrong people prophesying. You're not doing any of this right because you guys love the gift, not the giver of the gift. 
The point isn't to have a specific gift. The point is to have the giver. And that's what God has done is he's put his spirit in us that he is the one who chooses what gift he manifests. Spiritual gifts are manifestations of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul writes, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So it's this verse that causes a lot of people to get this understanding that, or this thought that like, once we're saved, we each get the spiritual gift, and we get the spiritual gift, and it's like, it's like a, my cell phone, like God gives it to me, I put it in my pocket, it stays there all day until I get a phone call, oh, someone needs my gift, time to pull it out. Like you could walk around all day, not in the spirit, not prayed up, not in the word, not connected to God, not communing at all, and we just think, we'd be like, oh, that person needs help, Whoosh, pull out my spiritual gift. You can't. Because the spiritual gift isn't a possession. The spirit is a possession. Christ is our possession. And so in times of need for spiritual gifts, it's not the gift we pull out. It's the spirit who shows up. And when he shows up, he manifests himself out of you through some kind of spiritual gift, depending on the need. So you could be, the example I used earlier, someone sitting in the corner, head down, and they're crying, and you're thinking, that person needs encouragement. But I have the spiritual gift of preaching, not the spiritual gift of encouragement, so that's not really for me to do. Someone else can do that. Is that what Christ thinks? Is that how Christ feels? Is that the way Christ operates? No? Well, first of all, Christ is, would we say that Christ is filled with all the spiritual gifts? I don't even think that'd be a proper explanation of Christ. I think a more proper explanation of Christ would be Christ was always perfectly filled with the Spirit. And the power of the Spirit was always working in him so perfectly through his human flesh that he always expressed the right gift at the right time for the need that it's needed. And so if I see that person sitting in the corner, I go, I don't have the spiritual gift of encouragement, but man, I'm prayed up, I'm filled with the Spirit, this person needs Christ, I need to love them, and I'll just kneel beside them and I'll put my arm around and be like, what do you need? I'm here for you. How can I encourage you? How can I pray for you? Are you just sad? Do you want me to shut up and just be here? <laughs> you know? What do you need? And I get to encourage them or come alongside them or show them compassion. I get to express Christ by the power of the Spirit. I don't know what gift that person needs. Maybe I go over there going, they need encouragement. Well, then I pull out my encouragement. I get there and I realize they don't need encouragement. They needed teaching. They're like, my heart is broken over this doctrine that you were just talking about. And it's like, oh, you don't need encouragement. You need conversation about doctrine and teaching. Well, now I've got to put encouragement back in my pocket and go in the other pocket and pull out teaching. Well, I don't have the gift of teaching. What do I do? Ah! Can you imagine if we tried to operate just based on like these specific gifts that were given to us and we could only use those ones and those are the only ones that were supernaturally powered? It has nothing to do with gifts because it's a gift. We think of it as like this individual package. When in reality, when scripture describes all the spiritual gifts, what they are, they all are manifestations of Christ. And Paul calls them manifestations of the Spirit because the Spirit's responsibility is to magnify Christ. So he shows Christ out of you whenever it's needed. So you see that person crying in the corner and the Holy Spirit goes, Christ! And just bursts out of you. and goes, go be Jesus to that person. The Spirit leads you over there and, and produces whatever Christ-like characteristic or quality that we call spiritual gifts, produces whatever Christ-like quality out of you in that moment for that need. 
The goal is not to figure out what gift you have. The goal is to figure out who the gift is. And it's the Holy Spirit, it's Christ, who, sh- who shows up in His Spirit. So our aim, again, it comes back to being filled with the Spirit. In order to manifest your gifts, you need to be filled with the Spirit. And how do you get filled with the Spirit? You commune with God in His Word and in prayer. I don't know how to write sermons where it doesn't come back to the word in prayer. I don't know how to do it. Maybe I'll learn when I turn 50 or something. But at 40, this is who we are. All right, church? And this is what we need. And I believe that we're in a season where this is an important message. And I feel like it's been this message for about two years or longer, longer than two years that we have been emphasizing being in the word and prayer. I can't imagine a time in my life when that won't be an emphasis because every one of us is going to keep growing until we die. So we all need this so that we can be filled with the spirit, love God, love others, pursue others, and the spirit would pour out of us or what, what Paul says, manifest himself, his power, supernaturally manifest his power out of you to encourage and strengthen a brother or sister in Christ. So if I say, hey guys, we ought to encourage each other and strengthen each other and let's go around and like be you know, good Christians to each other, you could pull that off for a long time with the wrong heart, the wrong motivation, and totally without the Spirit. And you would do all the things that you're good at. Maybe you're naturally an encourager. Like Jim, he's just said he likes my preaching. That was an encouragement to me, okay? That's who he is. That's his personality. Jim could easily walk around and encourage you all day without the Spirit because that's how he's wired. So a guy like you, you got to keep that in check, right? And I can say it to him because I know he totally wants me to talk about him in front of you guys. So (laughs) do I need to be done now? (laughs) And we all have that. We're all wired a certain way, you know? Maybe, like, you're, you're good with money. You're like, oh, my gift is, like, managing stuff, finances or whatever. It's like, you could do that without the Spirit and be great at it for the church. Thank you. But no thank you if love is not your motivator. No thank you if it's not a, the, the product of the Holy Spirit manifesting His supernatural power into your ministry. So it's not just the gifts, it's your ministries. Your ministries require the Holy Spirit. Your ministries require spiritual gifts because the use of your spiritual gift is used not just in random scenarios, but in the ministry God calls you to. What ministry has God called you to? What is your ministry to the church? How do you minister to God's people? Because we're all commanded to participate in ministry, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And it's my responsibility, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, to train you for that ministry. And this is that training. When you do your ministry, so the way in which I'm training you now for your ministry is to tell you, don't go do your ministry unless you are filled with the Spirit. Prayed up, read up, finding God in Christ to be the most satisfying pleasure in your life so that... When you go into the church and serve the people and do your work, whether you're helping on the worship team or you clean the church or you help with the children's ministry, you serve the youth ministry or you, whatever it is you do, or you, you're on a, a leadership thing or you're a small or life group leader or whatever, whatever it is you do, when you go into that ministry, that ministry 
is a vehicle meant to carry the power of the Spirit. So that you, being prayed up and filled with the Spirit, can unleash, by the Spirit's will, can unleash and manifest the power of the Holy Spirit through a gift that you might not even have. When I'm helping with chairs and doing, if, I'm, if you ever see me serving you with my hands, it's not me. <laughs> it is not me at all. Just know, flesh doesn't want to do it. Christ does. So if I'm doing it, that's the Holy Spirit. Or Brian made me do it. So, <laughs> so either way, we should all have that kind of experience, right? We're like, we might think that's not my thing. Well, that might not be your thing. That might not be your gift. That might not be your ministry, but it's a need. We need, we need it. We have so many kids in this church we need Bible teachers to teach kids. That's a real need in this church. Well, that's not my gift. You know, I don't like dealing with kids. I don't know. There are all these reasons why we shouldn't do it. I don't really feel like God's calling me to that. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. It's a need. He's calling somebody. Somebody's not listening. That's a reality because we have plenty of people who could fill certain needs, but somebody's not listening. Maybe it's me. I don't know. Maybe I'm not listening. Maybe it's you. I don't know. But I think we kind of look at ourselves and go, well, this is my gifting and this is my experience and this is what I'm good at. This is how I'm wired and this is where I want to serve. That's great. I want you to serve where you want to serve because the reality is if you're actually created and naturally wired toward a specific thing and empowered by the Spirit, you're going to be great at it, right? You're going to be great at it. So I want you to do those things. But first... We have needs as a body, as a congregation, as a people. Remember, brothers and sisters in Christ. How deep is that bond? Well, that bond runs all the way to these children who love Jesus too. And they need it. And, and it runs all the way up to the oldest people in our church. And they need it. And we all need it. And we need to serve one another. And if there are needs in the body, then the needs have to be met. And if you're thinking, that's not me, I'm just telling you, pray about it. And read the Bible every day and get filled to spirit and come back and tell me by the power of the spirit manifesting out of your mouth and say to me that's not my ministry then I'll believe you but only if you're filled will I believe it and if I'm not filled I won't be able to tell the difference you can do unbelievable remarkable unspeakable things because of Christ and it's not you doing them Ephesians chapter 3 says this is one of my favorite Bible verses in the entire well, Bible uh, <laughs> Ephesians 3.20 listen, listen to these words this is unreal now to him that's Christ or to, to God not to him who is able to do, stop, who is able to do what? Far more abundantly. Those three words are huge. Far more abundantly than what? Than all we can ask or think. His ability to work through you is greater than your ability to conceive of how he could work through you. He can do more through you than you can imagine he could do through you. So don't tell me 
that that's not your ministry. If you would have asked me 18 years ago, 19 years ago, Mark, do you want to stand up in front of people and talk? I'd be like, no. I remember 10th grade when I did my first speech and my teacher said, just, you know, don't talk to people a lot when you grow up. Because <laughs> I was so bad. It's like he gave, I had the worst, oh, my speech was so bad. I'll tell, tell you guys about it one day, but it was really bad. I was so bad at talking in front of people. And... It just, I would say at the time, it wasn't my natural ability. And God's like, well, I'm going to use you anyways. And I'm going to talk through you, because you can't. He has done in my life more than, more abundantly than 18 years ago I would have thought could ever happen. No way, say 20 years ago, I could have thought of myself today at 40 doing what I'm doing the way that I'm doing it. There's no way. And it just, it's just, just, just to realize that that's only a sliver or a glimpse of what he could do. He could do way more. He could use you to do anything. There are needs in the body that are not being met, and they're not being met because God's people aren't filled with the Spirit. The Spirit's not communicating to them and saying, that person needs your gift. That person needs me. Go over there. I'm going to pour myself out of you into them, and we're going to do this ministry. We need that. Do you think that would encourage kids? Do you think that would encourage your pastor? Do you think that would encourage the body? Do you think that would encourage the church leadership? Don't you think that would encourage one another to see people doing things that they're not naturally gifted at, that they're not naturally talented at, but doing them with the love and compassion and power of God in the Holy Spirit? Wouldn't that be amazing? Can you imagine what we could do? Can you imagine your giving? Yeah, I'm going to talk about money. Can you imagine your giving? If you are constantly filled with the Spirit. You think, well, it wouldn't change my finances, so it wouldn't change my giving. <laughs> I beg to uh, differ with that. And I argue that actually your giving, your ability to give, and I'm talking about money, but also give service to the church, your ability to give is a concept you haven't even grasped yet. You are capable of giving more than you can even fathom. When I'm talking about money, and I'm talking about your service, I'm talking about your heart and your attitude and your effort and your time, all of it, you are capable and able, regardless of your financial situation, to give abundantly. Only if you're spirit-filled. It starts with love. You have to love each other for this to work. And we will not love each other if we do not love God. And we will not love God if we do not know God. Be in the word. Be in prayer. Fill with the spirit. And watch God do far more abundantly than all that you could ask or think. Let's pray. God, we love you and we trust you. We depend on you completely. We want to love you more. We want to trust you more. We need to grow more. So work on us, work on us, work on us, God. Change our hearts and our minds and our attitudes. Help us find that ministry, but don't just throw us into ministry without the power of the Spirit moving us. Cause us to commune with you and to grow in you so we can be more like you and enjoy you forever. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.